0: 26 days until the Vancouver Municipal Elections. This is the CAMBI Report. I'm Matthew Naylor. I'm Patrick Meehan. I'm Ian Bushfield. And today we are very, very excited to bring you an interview with Paul Hendren of the Vancouver Election Office. But first we have a couple of housekeeping announcements. We have a live show coming
1: up again. Our last one before the election, which is less than a month to go. That's coming up so fast. Yeah. So
0: fast. 26 days. Holy crap. Next,
1: like, we were in triple digits when we started this, weren't we?
0: Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well over.
1: So, October 4th, the first Thursday of October, we are going to be back at the Belmont, one of our favorite venues. They've all been pretty good venues for us. Doors will be open at 7. You can get your tickets at canbyreport.eventbrite.com. We are lining up guests as we speak, and that information will be all up on our website at canbyreport.ca as well.
0: Now, you you might actually already have been able to get tickets. That would be if you are a member of our Patreon. So if you want to help support the podcast, please consider uh, throwing us a couple of bucks a month. Uh, You get a ton of extra benefits. The Slack channel alone uh, is filled with content, so much content that I can barely keep up. But it's... Actually, really, really spectacular. And you can access that at patreon.com slash report And the last thing I want to announce... I'll say it again. Patreon.com slash Report. Patreon.com slash Report. There you go.
1: Go ahead, Ian. The last thing I, I want a- to announce is we got put in touch with Megan Lau, who was following other elections. And she saw that out in Nova Scotia, someone put together a nice equity survey to find out where candidates in their last election stood on issues that weren't getting enough attention, maybe ones that affect racialized people or women or people with disabilities. And she thought we need something like that in Vancouver. So she put together with Black Lives Matter and other groups around Vancouver, this survey to really try to get at what candidates would do if they're elected. So it's a beyond housing survey. We're trying to help get that out there and we'll bring Megan on if we get a bunch of responses to try to see what candidates would do. This isn't a you must support basic income. This is, you know, what do you think about these kind of approaches to solving equity issues?
2: Yeah, I'm really excited for the open ended questions. I think a lot of candidates we know we know we've seen from Twitter are really excited to fill it out. And I think you'll get a real sense to it. I'm really happy that we have a chance to partner with some really amazing people to make this happen.
1: It's very long as well. We're sorry about that. It's one of those situations where if we had more time, we would have made
0: it shorter.
2: If you want to run for council.
0: As someone once said, someone who I I encourage you to look up because they're very pithy, I did not have time to write you a short letter, so you must make do with a long one. Well, our guest tonight is Paul Hendren. Paul is the election outreach lead for the city of Vancouver. Paul, thank you so much for sitting down with us today.
3: Perfect. Thanks for having me. Well, if we can
0: begin perhaps by getting a, an idea of what the lay of the land is. What what was the voter turnout in the last election?
3: Last election was at 43%, uh, which was about a, a 10% increase uh, from the election before that. So there were a couple of big changes that year. It was the start of Vote Anywhere, uh, where people could go to any voting location in the city. Um, They also had a bit of a bigger outreach program than they'd had uh, in in previous years. So I think those might have been some contributing factors.
2: And so prior to that, you would have had to vote in your pre-established voting location, like I have Creekside as my voting location. Exactly. And I, I can vote anywhere else if I want to, right? Yep. Okay. And you think that played into it really heavily, the ability to sort of, if you work somewhere or it's somewhere on your commute, you can stop in anywhere?
3: It's hard to say how heavily, but just looking at what were the big differences between elections, Mm -hmm. that was one of them. Um, But of course, there's the things that we do as an election office uh, related to sort of like the logistics of the election. And, you know, some of the things people want from an election office is like more options for voting. So can we have more advanced voting at more locations, which is one of the things we have this year. Um, But then outside of that, what the political race looks like also has a huge impact on turnout. So, you know, are people finding candidates they like? Does it look competitive and their vote's going to be really important in the race? Are there distinct platforms? So it really looks like voters have a choice to make.
0: So how does that 43% compare to other major cities across Canada? Um, Just to like, see how we're doing.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: That's considered pretty
3: good. OK. Yeah.
2: <laughs> All right. Is it, is it easy to do cross comparisons? I know that there's different ways of estimating voter turnout, different roles that you go based off of. Mm-hmm. Is that is, is is there sort of a, a consistent standard across the board for that?
3: Yeah. If you want to look at that, um, one of the big things to look for when doing comparisons is. Did they use like the total population of the city versus how many people voted or eligible voters versus number of people they voted? And sometimes that gives you differences in the numbers, but uh, generally you can do comparisons. So you've done a master's
1: degree on this stuff, correct? Yes, Yes. So you actually studied how cities can get out the vote. You were telling us a little bit about the barriers people can face. What were your findings at the like quickest, roughest take?
3: Sure. One interesting thing is there is a, a map of all the different neighborhoods in the city that had the voter turnout by neighborhood in the last election. And uh, I took some demographic data and some social indicators and, and layered those over top. And what I saw was pretty consistent with what um, the research shows around which groups tend to vote more and, and which groups have lower rates of turnout. And what I saw in Vancouver was areas... Uh, where people tended to be a bit older, where incomes were higher, uh, where there was a higher proportion of homeowners, those had higher rates of voter turnout. And in areas where there were younger populations, uh, incomes were lower, uh, higher proportion of renters, um, you tended to see lower turnout, which fits with a lot of the research.
2: Yeah, a friend of mine did that for uh, Surrey elections when she was running for council back in the mid 2000s. She did I uh, showed a big map and a board and she found, you know, some polling areas in Surrey or some 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 neighborhoods in Surrey had as low as like 19 or 18 or 17% voter turnout. Mm-hmm. Is it is it that low in Vancouver in some areas?
3: I don't think it was quite that low. I think 30s, w- 30s were the okay. lower the lower end up to about 60% in mm-hmm. other neighborhoods. So what is it
1: That you found that's made the difference between what gets a homeowner out versus a young renter.
3: Mm -hmm. So there's different theories for sure around each group. Uh, One is that um, homeowners might feel more invested in their neighborhood because they've made a big sort of financial commitment. They're literally invested (laughs) in their neighborhood. (laughs) For quite a while uh, so they tend to take um, like a bigger interest in what's happening and also like where are their property tax dollars going and how are those being spent and you know what's the future of that neighborhood going to look like um, whereas renters might not be sure how long they're going to stay um, and if it's really worth getting that invested and that's something actually that's been interesting from talking to uh, youth in the city through through different events. And they're a group that people focus a lot of attention on and why aren't youth voting and, and why is that that number um, kind of stagnant. And that's one thing I heard from a lot of youth is that uh, right now in the city, like, you know, they're going to f- finish their studies, but they're not sure if they're going to stay afterwards or not. So they're not sure how big a commitment they want to make to getting involved. And, and also a lot of them find that they have to work quite a bit. Um, well, it, it is there.
0: difficult to get a buzz going amongst You know certain demographics but there is a program that your your office has been launching to you know generate some buzz Uh, we're all drinking out of i'm not going to say what we're drinking but we're all drinking (laughs) out of these vancouver votes coffee mugs so number one thank you for for these and we
2: appreciate
3: all bribes from (laughs) guests yes
2: i like the i like the my coffee my vote brand
3: that's a good slogan Mm -hmm.
2: so why why? OK, that's a great
3: question. Um, like when we started this process, we did brainstorming and we were like, you know, there's sort of the obvious things that we're going to do that we know every other election office does, which is you get a team together and you go to events, you go out into the community, you talk to people, uh, answer questions and hand out uh, collateral material to give people information and we were like what are some things that we can do beyond that uh, that we haven't done before and that uh, you know we haven't seen other people doing and we had an idea that uh, if we could get some something going kind of like with local business that a lot of people go to and then tie it back into voting Um, that would be really interesting so with my coffee my vote uh, it encourages people to go around to local coffee shops try coffee and then vote for the one that is their favorite and it's going to bring them to a uh, website that we host and then you know hopefully they vote on it You know, it it, uh, gives them a link to use the plan your vote tool and uh, catches their interest in the election. The plan your
0: vote tool. What's what's that?
3: Great Uh, plan your vote tool is launching September 27th. It's one of our big tools for people to get informed about the election and it's gonna walk people through picking their voting date, voting time, voting location and it also will give people the uh, full list of candidates as well as bios and photos for candidates who selected those. Um, You can look at that in the random order or an alphabetical order as you're sort of selecting the people that you're interested in Um, and then that list you can email it to yourself and you can you know look at it on your phone when you go to vote or print it out Um, so bring your you know a little bit of a guide to help you uh with the ballot which uh, no doubt will it's a bit of a larger ballot
0: i think that's that's really cool because at, at least um in sasha cohen's the victory lab they they showed that one of the most effective ways to get people to vote was to phone them a day in advance and just ask them those quick questions uh how are you getting to the polls where is your polling place do you know who you're going to vote for not like asking them who they're going to vote for but do you have a plan to vote yeah
2: Yeah.
3: getting people to make that plan in their Mm -hmm. mind makes them follow through on it yeah with the with the random uh randomization of the candidates on the ballot and the uh The number of people who are running, uh, we're really encouraging people to use, (laughs) plan your vote ahead of time. Uh, If you don't like to get your information online, there's a worksheet in all the voter guides that are being printed. Same thing, you can mark it up with your choices and bring it with you um, to have a guide. And the other thing I think that, that's uh, going to be really helpful, too, is uh, people going out and taking advantage of advanced voting. We have mm-hmm. the most advanced voting dates and the most locations ever from the 10th to the 17th at 12 locations across the city. And for people who are concerned about like having a wait on Election Day, advanced voting is always faster.
2: Uh, I actually offer. really like advanced voting because uh, my, my voting day, Voting Day, is uh, Creekside Community Center in my neighborhood. But my actual uh, my actual polling area for advanced voting because of where I live is is City Hall. And it actually feels kind of neat to walk into City Hall to cast your vote. Obviously, that's not going to work for somebody that lives down in Champlain Heights. Yeah. But I actually quite like the idea of, you know, a citizen me walking in and voting at City Hall. It's kind of neat. Yeah, it's pretty
1: cool. But as you were pointing out, people can vote anywhere on election day. Does that
2: hold true for advanced voting as
1: well?
3: Yep, yeah, holds true for advanced voting and voting hours, uh, advanced voting and election day, 8am to 8pm
2: the randomized voting that you were mentioning there you were saying there's going to be a, a sample ballot available for people to be able to like print out if they want so they can have almost like a bingo sheet yes is that available now or is that going to be available soon
3: yeah so um, plan your vote and the voters guides are both becoming available on september 27th um, plan your vote's going to be online it'll people can get it on the website vancouver.ca/vote voter guides are going to be at all the community centers and libraries across the city so people can go ahead and pick those up And uh, we've printed them in multiple languages this year for the first time, which is cool. So you can get them in Mandarin, Cantonese, and Punjabi, as well as English.
2: That's the first time? For the Voter's Guide. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hmm.
3: One of the concerns people were talking about with
1: the randomized ballot, and this came up the last time they randomized the ballot in the 90s, I believe Sam Sullivan corrected us on our first episode about, was just that it can be overwhelmingly confusing. Do you think we've done enough? to address those concerns this time.
0: Especially so, with so many candidates. I mean, yeah. that that process was excruciating, watching all those names get drawn.
3: Yeah, for the things that we're able to do at this point, uh, I think we've done most of them, like the, the ballots have gone to print and uh, everything's in motion.
0: One of the criticisms elections agencies have faced uh, around Canada is that they've not done a particularly good job of reaching out to communities that haven't been voters in past very well. So how do you start looking at particularly immigrant communities Mm -hmm. that haven't been as involved in, you know, the electoral politics simply by virtue of not having participated in previous Canadian elections because they hadn't immigrated yet?
3: Yeah, definitely. So, what we're trying to do uh, with staff is is definitely to go out to events, big and small, in different neighborhoods all across the city and uh, find people where they tend, tend to be instead of just booking a room somewhere and saying, We're having an info session if you're interested in the election. We're really looking for places where, where people are going to be, like uh, language instruction, classes for newcomers. I think you were uh,
2: saying some summer festivals as well. Like, yeah, yeah. Were you guys out at like Skookum Festival last week? Uh,
3: no, we didn't. We didn't <laughs> manage to get out to Skookum Festival. But that must have been
2: a really good one. So who wants to go to the music festival this weekend uh, and run the booth?
3: Yeah, (laughs) I don't know. Well, it would have uh, some of the interesting ones <laughs> we got out to d- diverging a bit but um, we did go to the craft beer festival oh yeah yeah. I think I saw you guys there different trying to connect more with uh, some youth and we did a uh, connecting back to your last question um, we went to a citizenship ceremony and that's kind of cool because everyone mm-hmm. is just eligible huh, to vote yeah. like for the first time that, as they're walking out that the almost door almost
2: should be every citizenship ceremony should have like somebody from elections offices Yeah, actually. either elections mm-hmm. BC, elections Canada or the municipal elections office you just hand off to whoever's got the next election
3: <laughs> yeah yeah it'll be great um another thing that we've done is we're uh working with mosaic and we have mm. a bit of a partnership and they're doing some workshops for us um for newcomers and what is mosaic other than like you know tiles on a wall? Oh yeah, great question. Um, So Mosaic is a uh, a newcomer's uh, settlement organization. They work with a lot of Mm -hmm. new people to the
2: city. Really good organization.
1: Well, I saw one of the things on Vancouver City website under the election, how they're trying to encourage people to vote is really try to get people thinking about voting before they're even eligible. So there's this kids vote program. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about what that is? Because it looked kind of cool.
3: Yeah. So uh, future voters are um, a big thing, especially, you know, sort of when you see that research that says if someone votes for the first time when they're young, they're likely to Mm -hmm. much more likely to develop that habit and become a lifelong voter. um, And also sort of like, once grade 12s graduate high school, it's almost like, where do you find them again? Like they're you'll find some of them at university, at... but there's a whole other section of, of those mm-hmm. youth that it will be very hard to find afterwards. And
2: statistically, the university ones are the most likely to vote anyway. Exactly. So the only place yeah. you can gather them is a place where they're already predisposed to vote. You yeah. know, it's the people that are not going to university that are the hard ones to get to, right?
3: Definitely. So we we did a few uh, a few programs for our future voters. One, back in May, we started um, working with Check Your Head, and they did some, Check Your Head is a a youth engagement organization, Hmm. um, and they do a lot of work around, like, social justice and political engagement, and they did a bunch of workshops for grade 12s um, about what does your local government do, and why should you care, (laughs) and then, you know, what are the ways to engage with them. So voting was one, but also just talking about a number of different ways. If there's something you want to do in your community, uh, how how could you get involved? and uh, that's one thing that we did we've got a really cool partnership coming up with uh, an organization called civics and they have a program called student vote and uh, it's really neat the students the week before the election they set up a a polling station in their gym that's run exactly like on election day they get a ballot that has the same candidates um, as the election and uh, they get to cast their vote so they get familiar with um, like what is the process like so it's not mysterious if you're considering going and doing that for the first time and they also get a great curriculum that gets you start thinking about like what are my values and how do I figure out how those match to a platform and figure out sort of make a decision around who I'd want to vote for.
0: And I think it is really cool like I, I still remember the fact that my teacher did this that it felt meaningful and you know I also had been kind of inculcated with the importance of voting. I remember going with my dad to the the polling station and circling the candidates he was going mm-hmm. to vote for, as as he checked in the line who was running for school board,
1: uh,
2: as we all do. All yeah, so happened. bringing this <laughs> back to
1: Vancouver, will the
3: results of the high school vote be made public? They will. They will be made public after the oh. the uh, results. Yeah, that the, would make sense. The election, but yeah, we'll definitely make those public.
2: That's gonna be really neat to take a look at and see how that mat- meshes or diverges. You're saying how many schools are taking part in this?
3: Uh, last count, I think, I think there was over 50 schools. Oh, wow. And so that's
2: going to be quite the cross section of Vancouver. Yeah. I'm really excited to see the results of that, actually. Yeah. No, Um, it's going to be great. Almost do an interview after the election on just that. So
0: you're investing in, in future voters, but there are uh, organizations that are currently trying to pull voters to the polls, political parties or campaigns being, you know, the big one, Mm -hmm. but also special interest groups, you know, have, have their Positions and, and endorsements and motivations. How does your work complement or or work alongside the activities of more partisan
3: entities? Mm-hmm. The way. I see our role in sort of the whole election office sees our, our role is really about getting information to people so that if they um, choose to participate, uh, they have all the information they need to, to know what to do. Um, so it's really like, you know, step one, like getting the date in everyone's mind and making sure people know what their options are when it comes to voting. So you know, if you're not here or you have a disability and it's hard to get out to vote, um, you can do mail ballot voting. There's, uh, you know, advanced voting between the 10th to the 17th and election day, October 20th. So like, that's one of the key things we want to get in people's mind. And then the other pieces are just making people feel confident that they are ready to go out and vote. So sort of what to expect, like what type of ID do you need to bring with you? uh, What's going to be on the ballot and uh, getting people information that helps them um, know who all the candidates are and make those types of decisions.
2: So if, if, if somebody owned a, owned a, a business or if somebody was part of an organization, could they reach out to you and say, get a bunch of materials sent over to them, you know, printed materials or a poster or something that they could put up in their, their workspace or their business mm-hmm. place? Mm-hmm.
3: That's a great question. And, uh we just finished sending out a bunch of yep. uh, posters and postcards and other materials, uh, mostly to nonprofit and community organizations around the city to help spread the word and get it out. But uh, yeah, if a business wanted to put up a poster about like, you know, elections, October 20th, vancouver.ca slash vote, that's, that's great. That's all gets the message out.
1: The only other question I have for you relates to A lot of elections have generally relied on political parties to actually do a lot of the work to get out the vote. Now, they're each trying to get out a very specific segment of the vote. Mm -hmm. But this year, with the new campaign finance restrictions, there's arguably, you know, one hand tied behind the back of the major parties. How is your office kind of approaching these new restrictions? And do you see that as a bigger challenge to get out the vote, as it were?
3: Mm-hmm. We're definitely like doing a bit more this year. And I think some of the some of it uh, has to do with knowing that was coming and, and there might be a bit of a gap in terms of how much information people are getting ahead of time. Um, for instance, my role is the first time there's been uh, sort of an outreach lead in the election office. Mm-hmm. And we started outreach um, a lot earlier than it has in the past. We started going out to events in June. And uh, that was actually really good because it was a good chance to just talk to people about what the city does and we had a lot of information about like these are the big services of the city and like you know here's where a lot of the money gets spent um, and that type of information then also getting people registered on the voters list which cuts off in mid-august so it was really good to be able to um, be able to register people on that so they get their voter information card and uh, now we're just continuing to go out being in public spaces and and switching more to like uh, how do you plan your vote and what day are you going to go vote mm-hmm. on? Are you going to do advance vote or are you going to do election day?
0: How do you sustain that interest between elections? Like, you know, our democracy isn't just the, the ballot box, it, it's civic society. How do you yep. make sure that all the good work that you're doing right now keeps people engaged and then also voting in the next election?
3: yeah that is a topic that people discuss it's kind of like <laughs> um, oh man you just you come out like once every four years for a yeah. few months and you're like this is really important and we want to come talk to you and then like everyone packs up and kind of goes away for for uh, three and a bit years
2: I guess it's hard for the city to justify the outlay of staff resources that it does during the election throughout mm-hmm. the For like as a permanent basis, right? Yeah. Like I imagine most of the people working on this outreach component are doing other things after October 20th.
3: Yeah, totally. Um, Yeah, there's not really an election office. uh, Mm -hmm. You know, people stay around for a bit to file all the paperwork and stuff, but then it pretty much closes shop. I think the the best thing um, people can do in between elections, and this is something that I know some electoral agencies are going towards, which is like coming up with curriculum stuff that it's really easy for teachers to just take and integrate into the classroom so that there's a bit more discussion about it and when kids are coming out of school they you know they hopefully have a really good sense of like the three different levels of government and and what each one kind of does and like how government impacts their life so why it's important to to pay attention and be a voter.
2: Do you want to let everybody know where you can where people can find more information?
3: Yeah, definitely. So great sources of information, vancouver.ca slash vote. Uh, we're updating it regularly. Pretty much everything you want to know is already up there, um, except for all the candidate information and the plan your vote tool. And those are coming uh, onto the website um, going live on September 27th. Also on the 27th, voter guides are going to be available to pick up in community centers and libraries across the city. And that's a great resource as well. All right. Well,
0: there being no further business, I gavel this interview to an end. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Let's get to the
0: news.
2: Making room. So what is making room and why is it important that it passes? So making room is a a mass rezoning of the city that is not intended necessarily to increase supply, although that may be an after effect. What it does is it takes, uh, right now, most of the city is uh, zoned to be only single family housing. We've talked about this fairly extensively on the pod. What making room would allow is it would allow instead of a single family house. So right now we're seeing a lot of. Houses be bulldozed and replaced with much larger single-family houses, and so that meet the maximum allowable square footage. And so, what making room allows is for you to take that and then turn it into a fee simple duplex, or what would, would have you know the technical term, which would be essentially a, a duplex on the lot. Uh, same square footage is currently allowed under the maximum square footage of a single-family house, one basement suite. But you wouldn't be allowed if you duplexed it. You wouldn't be allowed to add a laneway house. So what that does is if it maintains the same number of maximum allowable units on a property. But allows it to be one building which would be a significantly cheaper build cost and a significantly simpler process and so this expands your building options if you're bulldozing a single family home in vancouver you now have more options for what you can do it does also i should note increase the number of parking stalls required on the site from one to two instead of a, sing- a very large single family house with one stall it would be a duplex with two stalls
0: so it's like the Diet Hector Brender plan.
2: I think one of the things that happened, so there was uh, two days of public hearings and months and months and months of uh, of consultation with communities. Uh, and I watched both days of the hearings almost almost entirely because I've had a, a a very badly sprained ankle and have been stuck on a couch. So I watched it also because apparently I hate myself. And like you said, Matthew, most of the, the proponents of the plan, and I, I, I spoke spoken, I, I, I agree with the, the plan, said, called it a very tiny baby step that must happen.
0: Well, I mean, like, you have to learn to take baby steps before you can actually walk or run or, you know, pole vault into the future,
2: as some candidates suggest. Uh, the vote, when it did come down, was very interesting because you had, obviously, the three NPA councillors voted against it. They cited a lack of consultation, which... I think is a uh, uh, cheap out. I don't. I don't actually think that that was a reasonable out on their part. I feel like I want to just have an air horn whenever someone says there wasn't
0: enough consultation. I'm like. Meh. Yeah, nah. uh, and then because it's just it's just a bullshit excuse <laughs> for not doing things. Well,
2: and Hector Bremner talked about how this was a, a much needed step forward and a baby step, and he was happy to vote in favor of it. And it was interesting watching Vision, sort of who actually brought this all forward. They 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 were the direction initially. Uh, they were almost half backing off of it by the end because of just how vitriolic it was looking. But I find it so interesting, and I can't remember which city councilor it was. It might have been Andrea Reimer. Who said that. They'd had all of these speakers coming from communities saying that this plan will destroy Vancouver. And then they had all of these speakers coming from these speakers who are mostly under 30 or under 40, I should say, coming in and saying how this is a baby step towards affordability. This is a tiny little baby step. And so the question is, is it going to completely destroy Vancouver or is it a baby step to progress? And it's amazing to hear the different tone that different people take on. Number
0: one. Time destroys all things, and everything is different from the past. So, like, yes, it will destroy Vancouver, but Vancouver is getting destroyed anyway because the future is different from the past. Mm -hmm. Two, you know, they're called Vision, they're not called
1: Courage.
2: So, (laughs) uh, They can see the right idea.
1: It was interesting to see Hector really latch on to this, though. Right after the vote, he released a bunch of videos talking about and even, like, promoted tweets of, like... A very look, fun
0: video. I like it. Look so how
1: conciliatory I am. Look how willing I am to work across party lines. You know, these it's, are the kind of things we should be doing. Yes,
0: yes, Envision yes yeah. voted in favor. Green and MPA voted against, correct?
2: Yes. Uh, Adrian Carr also voted against it. Also, again, citing lack of consultation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, I will say that, like, some of the quotes from the people opposed to it were, were almost, almost... Amazing in how unironic they were. Uh, One person said zoning was first brought in to protect people's land values. And that's why you need to keep this zoning which Matthew's giving me a really funny look right now that I think is just distaste. Another person talked about how they were a third generation Dunbar resident, not even a third generation Vancouver resident, but a third generation Dunbar resident. And congratulations that you're so affluent that you never felt the need to move to a suburb uh, in order to be able to raise your kids. A for the landed aristocracy of Vancouver. Uh, But it was, it was really, but I mean, you know, know, Mario has said, uh, American Seiko, polar pollster for research co has said that, you know, people seem to be in favor of this, this policy in general
0: <laughs> well like I, I think that people could be in favor of this policy i think people could be in favor of quite a bit more but that that i think is going to be uh, largely determined on october 20th yeah so speaking not of landed aristocracies but new money a german immigrant to vancouver has been monkeying around with his substantial amount of money has been uh making some oblique contributions to the uh, election of one of the mayoral candidates, one Hector Bremner. Vancouver's for affordable housing, their secret moneyed backer, was revealed to be Peter Wall of Wall Center and, you know, Vancouver City of Glass fame.
2: And a notable longtime Vision supporter. Uh, Peter Wall donated has donated a lot of money to Vision over the last decade. The Wall Center hosted uh the Vision Victory Party in I think the 08 municipal election, and beer prices were notably lower than uh Wall Center beer prices typically are, so he must have pulled some strings for that.
1: Credit to the Globe and Mail for breaking the story. But, and and Francis Gary Mason. Even though they put it behind a paywall, it eventually leaked out of that paywall and everyone got I, to read I it. I pay for the Globe and Mail. Mm-hmm. So speaking of paywalls, Patreon.
2: Aye, 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 aye. But <laughs> <laughs> So $85,000 uh, was the was the bill of sale for those for those billboards,
1: which is actually much less than Peter has given to previous campaigns, I would imagine.
2: Yes, but much more than he's legally allowed to give to this campaign. After September. September 22nd. Yeah. Well, so- and
1: it's not that he said, put up billboards. What it turns out, and this is just how you operate when you're rich. You t- you go to your lawyer and say,
2: <laughs> I'm willing to spend up to $85,000 just on
1: Help get so-and-so elected, however you see fit. And if that is launching a Facebook page, running a bunch of Facebook ads and buying some billboards, that's what they do.
2: I mean, it's not a politics that I want to see. I don't like it. I hope that the the Bremner campaign and the E.S. Vancouver campaign were unaware of it. I'm I'm skeptical. But it's done now because as of September 22nd, he can no longer legally do that.
1: Unless he registered
2: Unless as a red party. And even he's then, not done. yeah. And so not registering, it's 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 an ugly side to politics. I think it's...
0: I don't know why it's ugly. They were very nice posters. They were very pretty. And I think it's fine.
2: Yeah, but I think... Just because you like it doesn't mean that it's good for our polity. I, now, it's something that I hope the BC government cleans up in, the, in in a revision of the act going into the next municipal elections, but it's certainly not something that, you know, you should have this sort of super PAC individual that can self-finance a political party in the lead up to an election with without any transparency, without any understanding of who's paying for it or why.
0: As it turns out, there isn't a ton of, like, sustained impact from visual advertising over, like, the attenuation is, is pretty strong over four weeks. What the BC government has done is written an act that prevents undue influence from creeping into the election in the least restrictive way possible. We should have governments that try not to impinge on people's lives and freedoms more than they have to. And and this is a good way of doing that because they've actually managed to draw a line around the area where those kinds of things could have
1: undue influence and unfair impacts. And there's an issue around here that I'm still trying to suss out for my own work Mm because with the BC Humanist Association, we've done some work looking at property tax exemptions in the province but that becomes an issue that could be relevant for the municipal election, and some of the election this financing. This because tax God, right? Uh, we have not officially said that. We're saying it's up to. God doesn't to have do an that. income. But,
2: Why would you? You can't. You, there's not enough money to it. I don't account. know. I pay my ties. But the question
1: <laughs> becomes: Under the Elections Act, there's direct sort of advertising, no. which this is this Peter Wall thing supporting a guess. specific candidate. But then there's issue advertising is also regulated. So if a, say, pro-housing group was, or an anti-housing group, was sponsoring a bunch of ads, not saying vote for this person or don't vote for this person, but really trying to get that issue and their framing of it out there, that gets captured. And that can really affect how charities, non-profits, and groups that aren't necessarily partisan work. And so I am sympathetic to the narrowly crafting these laws so as to not impugn freedom of speech. But then again, I also don't like super PACs that end up
0: I think the quoting shadow money. Like the unholy, so I don't
1: know where the fine
0: line is. Like the unholy shitstorm that I unleashed when I, I reminded every political party at UBC when I was VP external there that there were spending implications and, and restrictions that were placed on their spending that they all collectively had to abide by because they were all entities as part of the same, like, single legal entity, was extraordinary. And so, like, just for the sake of people who are trying to do that in in the future i want those laws drawn as narrowly as possible to like exclude undue influence but not like draconianly impose a, a chill on free speech
2: to engage with what you're saying there ian I, I definitely agree with you like i think organizations that have an outside outside voice that want to talk about an issue or want to raise an issue in an election. They should be able to. That is part of the body politic. That is part of the issues. I think what you need to do is you need, like, I think we need to make sure that the rules clarify, you know, if you're clearly just masquerading a high-priced campaign, like you see in the United States with things like uh, gun control or abortion or things like that, just to to, to quietly pro- support a party. Or uh, if you're just brazenly supporting a party like this, that should count toward their, their, their campaign spending. And if they don't want it to count towards the campaign spending, they can launch an official complaint saying that our image is being used... On those billboards, take them down, please.
1: So I think this is going to be the perpetual agree to disagree situation. And I think we can move (laughs) to the other agree to disagree situation, which is the rental housing task force decision to recommend we lower the...
2: So the annual rent cap, which the calculation that's used per regulations in the uh, rent cap is 2% above the re- inflation rate. And what that's been over the last 10 years or so has consistently been between 2 and 3.5% because in- interest inflation rate has been very, very low. We're now entering a phase where inflation has been coming up and up and up. And now uh, in 2018, uh, the rental cap was at 4%, which caused quite a bit of an outcry. Uh, I myself got hit with that cap and I'm going to be paying 4% more as of November 15th because my rent is on the 15th because it's weird. And next year's amount was announced last week as being 4.5%, which is now, you know, getting into real high territory, and it caused a, a huge hue and cry. And so today, uh, the rental task force headed up by Spencer Chandra Herbert is recommending to the minister as a prelude to their later uh, recommendations that the rental cap calculation be changed from 2% above inflation to simply inflation.
0: I just think it's a, a golden opportunity was missed to call it the Tenancy Act Rental Task Force or TART Force.
2: <laughs> oh, I like that. Fair enough.
0: So the cost of operating a business, a, a like housing business, which is what a landlordly landlordship is, increases at a rate higher than that of inflation, and we have data to bake the, back this up. And so the argument from an abundant housing standpoint is. To say that if you limit the amount that rent can be increased to inflation alone, the fact that the overhead or the cost of operating the business will increase year over year by the you know whatever the the differential is between the interest rate and the you know plus two percent will discourage people from investing in properties that they would then rent out to people uh, and so discourage landlords from entering the market and therefore discourage rental housing. This does happen in Toronto. There is indication that this happens in Toronto. And
1: so to have that as a strict policy would be bad. Luckily, they've given a sort of appeal recommendation that landlords would have the ability to apply for an additional increase if they can show the formula would not cover those maintenance or other costs incurred. Now, I guess the idea here would be that added barrier creates a disincentive to just automatically do it across the board. And so you probably would see most landlords not apply.
2: Yeah, so I reached out to a, a number of uh, developers uh, through Twitter and a number of people that are fairly co- fairly understanding of the financial sector. And so one of the things is, you know, Twitter is, as it's wont to do, uh, wailing Terrible. and screaming about this. A, a number there of individuals are saying that zero rental builds will happen ever again in Vancouver,
0: which is silly. I mean, zero rental builds, if, if the economy is left to its own devices, it is unlikely that rental builds will happen at all. Because it is just so much more profitable to create condos, so they well, do that's, have to be sustained.
2: That's not actually true. North America is seeing a rental building boom North America wide right now compared to pre- previous years, um, mostly because Vancouver the, is
0: different. The market
2: in Vancouver is a little um, different. No, Vancouver has built. Uh, Vancouver built more in the last five ye- more rental in the last five years than it had from two thousand to two thousand
0: eight. And while well, I am loath to compliment Vision, uh, yeah, the, the rental incentive program they have quite had well. a very substantial rental yeah. incentive program.
2: And so, you know, there are, I think, other incentives that you can do. I think that there are, there's a way to balance. Uh, anyways, to get back into it. is uh, it where to to a number of developers and people that are in the know on Twitter and sort of the general assumption, I can, the general takeaway I came up with this is that the starting rent is the key for whether or not and how to finance a purpose-built rental build. That the, uh, generally, uh, and this is from one source, from another source I got, that they would have baked into it uh, something slightly higher than inflation as their average rental increase year over year. They wouldn't have baked in likely the two percent above inflation that was under the law, but they would have baked in, a, say, a three percent, or say, a, like a one percent above inflation, and that can easily be absorbed through when a tenant leaves, and you you can reset the rent to whatever the market is. If you've got say a fifty-unit build, you're gradually changing rents in different units. It's very unlikely from what my read of it that this would affect the Purpose Bill Rental. And even beyond that, mm-hmm. I think the uh, Purpose built Rental development, I mean, it is one more hurdle as was pointed out. There are a lot more hurdles that are larger and can be dealt with or are not able to be dealt with like interest rates. But the thing that to my mind is if a Purpose built Rental requires 2% above inflation, annual increases in rent every year for 30 years to be financially viable. I don't know what bank would give money for that, because then you're not allowing for the possibility of a shock to the market where there is a crash, where- Ooh, a crash would be marvelous. Um, <laughs> but would it be marvelous for all that purposeful rental that's been, that has to pay off its mortgage? And that, if they're baked in- I don't know, 2% it's meant the government. They might nationalize it all. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I wouldn't be opposed. So
1: it was interesting to see the mayoral candidates react to this. Mm-hmm. Kennedy came out saying, you know, I've been advocating this for weeks- Shauna tweeted out, kudos to at Cope Vancouver for rent advocates, you know, convincing them to knock this off because Cope's been arguing for a flat out rent freeze, a 0% increase, which most people will argue. (laughs) Well, most people will also argue further exacerbates the problems you're talking about, Matthew, and really discourages landlords from or people from developing new rental stock. But I think their hope is it's a very temporary measure to then sort of people can't afford the rents we have right now. So uh, but she's also talked about the importance of tying rents to the building
2: rather yeah, than to the purpose. She's proposing some revolutionary stuff.
1: Education has
0: a, a higher education price index. It's almost like we are looking for, instead of a... Pla-
2: all industries do. Actually there's a medical inflation price index. There's uh most major industries. So do we have a, have price a landlord's price, price index? Oh uh, there is a housing price index. So landlord No, BC, that's different.
0: That is different. This um, is like cost of operating a yeah, housing business.
2: So so landlord B C claims seven point six percent annual Cost of business increases. Well,
0: that's a that's a industry advocacy organization, yeah. and so full of shit.
2: And so, this is to get to what you were saying there, Matthew, about the idea that the cost inflation of running a, a, a rental it rises above the rate of inflation. And I think it might. The studies that I've seen have not taken into account the amount of tax breaks that you get as being a landlord. If you you know if your fridge breaks and you have to get a repairman, that's a taxable thing. If you get a cup of coffee near your rental apartment, you can say that you visited your rental apartment and write that off as a as a tax break. Now, obviously only at 10% but like these things can add up quite quickly. This comes to
0: down to a bit of a philosophical disagreement over the nature of what government should do to do things or mm-hmm. to encourage people to do things. Mm-hmm. And I would be perfectly happy to get rid of all the tax incentives and just I mean no s-
2: disagreement here on for the most part. Yeah,
0: and just set the set the thing at the landlord's price index. Well, like I- like get rid of everything and let the markets measure like, it, let an accurate market measure be the, the level.
2: And, and this is the one thing that really frustrates me about this whole conversation is, I think whether or not a landlord can raise it above or below the inflation rate or what have you not, I think that that's a, a renter that's a, a renter issue. I think that, you know, how and where and what you can build for a rental build, I think that's a landlord issue. I think that, you know, you can protect renters' annual price increases, greater than we do now, while also ensuring that there are effective mechanisms in place for landlords to be able to financially afford to run rental. I don't think that the one precludes the other, but I do agree with you that like lowering the annual year over year increase is going to be, as was said by somebody when I reached out to them, uh, you know, one more hurdle.
0: And, and and like I say, if there is a situation where there is a negative landlord's price index, there should be, you know, a reduction in the maximum or, or in fact, maybe a mandated rollback in the rent. I have no idea. Uh, well, and
2: I don't, I don't think we'd ever see that. Is the thing?
0: Yeah. No. I know this is like you know my. Well, my, when Gene Swanson becomes my num- premier, my numbers <laughs> there run. There you go. My numbers run semi-conservative, semi-socialist paradise. It's <laughs>
2: well, and that, the that's, equation
0: of British Columbia.
2: Yeah, that's just it. So I, I actually wrote on the, the Cambria Report blog, because we have one. I, we have two two articles up. And I actually wrote on this specific issue. Uh, and I had thought that the the province would step in. I, I said I agreed with them to step in. And I had assumed that they would do a one-year, one-time-only thing. But this seems like it'll be a change to the calculation going forward, which is a quite a substantial change.
1: Well, it sounds like the government's set to announce its decision whether it adopts this recommendation, which seems very likely, or <laughs> like not by October week. 1st. Yeah. And then we will expect the full response from the Rental Housing Task Force, one of the many, 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 many BC government task force by November. Well, one party that's super in favor of a, I imagine, reasonable rent control system, not a full freeze, is One City. And on One City's council slate is Brandon Yan, who's been in the news this week because. He's, his name's going to appear on the ballot with his Chinese name.
2: This is such a weird issue.
1: It, it's such a non-issue so, until everyone else made it an issue.
2: So Brandon Yan says that he went up to, you know, register to vote. And at the, when he was filling out his final paperwork post-registering, they said, oh, what name would you like to appear on the ballot? And he said, oh, can I, can I include the, 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 the characters of my name in, uh, in Chinese? Uh, and they said, yeah, sure. Because you are allowed
0: to appear on the ballot. As included in the law, yeah. as any and, name you are known
2: by, and Yan is, uh, is Chinese name. Like this is there. There's a very clear translation that you can use. Uh,
0: also, many politicians pick a Chinese name, so like it, it yeah. is a thing that you do. Not on the, in not on the
2: ballot, just on the signs. It's not on the ballot provincially. I don't believe I've never seen it. Well, yeah,
0: but you have to um, appear as your legal name on a provincial ballot yes. and not as your. Known by name. Oh, I see what you mean. Oh,
2: interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, you, so like
0: Roller Girl cannot be unless she, she legally couldn't, changes couldn't be her Roller name. Girl. Yeah, uh, uh, as Roller Girl on the ballot, no. but Brandon so, Yan, Chinese name.
2: <laughs> so Ken Danik and Sophie Wu have lodged this compl- lodged a complaint against Brandon Yan, uh, which I I can only refer to as spurious, which continues a long track record of them for being spurious as candidates. Now they've run in multiple campaigns before and won. And they weren't aware that they could... Their argument is that it wasn't available for everybody. It is and,
0: available for everybody. And like,
2: Brandon Yan, in in his own telling, and I have no reason to disbelieve this, says, I walked up and, I, and they asked me what name to put, and I said, could I put that? And they said, yes. They've run multiple times. How did they not know they could do this?
0: Well, because they did not have the imagination to... Like, they did know that they could do this. They just ha- didn't have the imagination to do so. So their lawsuit against Brandon Yan seeking an injunction to, like, prevent him from having his name in Chinese on the ballot is ludicrous. It doesn't sound like they've been injured. They were playing by the same rules. Get over yourselves. But that's basically, that, that's basically, I don't think they have standing, uh, which is a lawyer term for bleh.
2: Uh <laughs> and uh and Coalition of Vancouver isn't only in the news for this one this week. Uh they Ken Ike being uh, and Sophie Wood being candidates for Coalition of Vancouver. Uh Young's very odd distracted driving ticket continues to get worse.
0: All right, so I had a little bit of a rant uh on this and Patrick has a, an even like a, a slightly different lens
2: on this rant. So I I will uh the thing that bothers me is so her campaign came out with this idea that you know, she wasn't distracted. She wasn't. Dis- she wasn't using a cell phone. She was simply applying makeup while driving.
1: Well, and that was the case last week. And yeah. Dan Fumano points out on Twitter, like usually that would be it. And you know, yep. you'd have your one day story, and it'd be over. But they've decided to keep this story going.
2: So they put out a photo of of her phone next to her compact to show that a f- compact can be mistaken for an iPhone. And the one question that I have left over is. Are you saying you should be allowed to, like, when you're driving, your hands should be on the wheel, you should be scanning, and you should be focused on the task in front of you. Distracted driving is not just a cell phone.
1: As far as I understand it, distracted driving, can you can be charged with it if you are eating obnoxious, like, in a way that is not paying attention. If you are shaving, if you are putting on makeup, if you're on your cell phone and holding it there. So... Yeah, it's... I don't know what their defense is. And then she's also trying to go off on Kennedy Stewart because he
2: oh, yes. got and charged her, with something. Her press release said that...
1: Or, sorry, Socialist Stewart.
2: Yes, her press release said that Socialist Stewart is a felon, basically, for getting arrested in a protest. Okay, um, that's
0: not... We don't... <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, no,
0: no. Oh, God. Okay. She made laws. Oh, my God. Yeah, she should know about the
2: laws. And so so this campaign is just like an an unending train wreck from start to finish. I can't imagine we're done with it yet. I mean, she's she's also continuing and this blows my mind. She's continuing to say that Two percent, only two percent of Vancouverites cycle, which is wildly inaccurate. We know that seven percent of all trips are done by bicycle. We know that ten percent of all commuters are cyclists in the city of Vancouver. And yet she has been told this in debates and continues to refute it. And it blows my mind that a she candidate did, she will refute just lie it, she just like or li- sorry lies. Yeah, she has been told that she's wrong and she continues to lie about it. Well, it's because
0: she has chosen a statistic that refers to Metro Vancouver, and if she is like tracing out the you know Metro in there, it is. Basically, it's deceptive. It's, it is it oh, is deliberately yeah. deceptive, and if we're going to call some politics ugly, this is the kind of shit oh, that I think should be absolutely. called ugly. Well, I think I think, I think we all agree on that. Yeah, yeah. A
2: candidate standing <laughs> up and lying is ugly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, stay tuned to—I don't know whether this is going to make the actual, like, free cut of the interview, but uh, Hector Bremner, when asked about uh, the Peter Wall spending, said, well, he could have done more. <laughs>
2: Oh my god. Well, and he also also gave a fairly spirited defense that I think has a justifiability to it, even if I don't necessarily agree with it.
1: But in any case, sign up to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Report. to be the first to get access to that interview. And to get the full cut of it, where you will also find our interview with Ian Campbell that will go nowhere else because he's not running anymore, but it was still a fun conversation. Mm-hmm. Our full cut with Shauna Sylvester and Kennedy Stewart and Ken it, Sim.
0: Right, that the last one that we interviewed. Wei Young has not responded to our interview requests. Maybe she never will speak to us again. If she listens to the podcast, what should people be doing while driving? Driving. That is it.
1: So closing off today's episode, Patrick, you have wanted to talk about the (laughs) histories of armories speaking of a fiery episode, <laughs> as our Auto for the day. Fix yeah. bayonets and so this is
2: load the cannons. So this is a very timely one because this Saturday the Canadian Forces is having their annual open house on Saturday the 29th and all reserve armories uh, around the lower mainland will be open for you to go in and see. Uh, we have a number of really historic armories. The you know 120-year-old Royal Westminster Regiment Armory is located in sort of halfway between downtown and uptown New Westminster and it's originally the Fire Hall for New Westminster, and it's a fantastic historical site. They'll have their museum open. They'll have their building open, so you can see you can see you know soldiers doing what soldiers do. If you go to the C Fourth Armory at First and Burrard, again an infantry regiment, just like the Westminster Regiment, that's a building that was built in 1937. It was the last great armory of the British Empire, and it truly is a fantastic armory. I truth to be truth be told, I am a C Fourth islander myself. Uh, is my sort of part time gig. Uh, the building is one of the largest indoor parade squares in probably Western Canada. The Besborough Armory, which is an artillery regiment out in uh, Arbutus and about 12th, that armory houses the Canadian Artillery Regiment there, 15 Field Artillery. And up on the North Shore is the Fell Armory for the Engineers, which I believe was a former fire hall. It's a beautiful old red brick building, and there's a historic wooden structure next to it that was constructed something like 150 years ago. Anyways, these these buildings are really neat. They've been there for a long time. They're still in use today. Oh, the Beattie Street Armory. I forgot about that. Yeah, that's the one the, with the tank downtown
0: that I the, cycle past all the time.
2: The one with the tank and the, the cannon out front of it is the Beattie Street Armory, located right by Stadium Scheduling Station. Uh, I believe it's got a heritage designation for the oldest building in Vancouver that's still using its intended purpose. Anyways, these these buildings are all fantastic little buildings. Their their museums will be open. You'll be able to see some of the the tools that uh, Reservist uses in their day-to-day operations. And there's a really funny quirk of demographics here is I just named basically all of the lower mainland armories, except for the Sherman Armory down in Richmond, but that's a bit of a service service battalion thing. And do you guys notice anything weird about where they all are? I did
0: not and would not have had you not mentioned it beforehand. But it is interesting now that you point
2: it out. Why don't you point it out? Uh, Well, three of them are in Vancouver and none of them are in Surrey or Langley. All of our buildings are... But bi- no
1: one's going to invade Surrey or lonely No <laughs> but, offense.
2: But all of our buildings are built off of demographics of 100, uh, 100 or so odd years ago. And so we have all these reserve regiments located in high populous areas, er- or in what are now not the, the populous areas of Vancouver necessarily, as a, re- as a metro region. Well, Saturday the 29th, uh, if you're interested in seeing what reservists do in your city, uh, go out and take a look. It'll be a really neat opportunity to see yet another sort of inner workings of a, a level of government inside of the city. we bring this episode of The Can Report...
1: To a close. <laughs> As a reminder, our live show is coming up on October 4th. Make sure you get tickets and see you there. 26 days to go. Man,
0: under a month. Holy crap. This is we're we're really in it now, people. The election is coming.
2: Alright, well, thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Patrick Mean.
0: I'm Kim Bushfield. And I am Matthew Naylor. Good night.